folklore, the beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Joining me as a guest on this episode of the podcast is Claudia Schwaber. Now some of you may remember Claudia's name from a few episodes ago when we looked at Hansel and Gretel. It was Claudia's research into that subject that formed the basis of my work writing that particular podcast script. Claudia is an assistant professor of German, and she holds a PhD in German studies from the University of Florida. She teaches German literature, translation, business, culture, and particularly fairy tale classes at Utah State University. Now, Claudia's published a number of articles and book chapters on a variety of subjects, including the pedagogy of fairy tales, magic realism, literary fairy tales, German tales of the Romantic period, East German fairy tale films, and adaptations on television of classic tales. Her particular research interests include 18th and 19th century Romantic literature and culture, fairy tale and folklore studies, German Orientalism, children's literature and film, and the cultural evolution of fairy tales transmission and dissemination of them, and the way that they are cultural signifiers. Claudia co-edited New Approaches to Teaching Folk and Fairy Tales in 2016, and she's currently finalising her book Craving Supernatural Creatures, German Fairy Tale Figures in American Pop Culture. And it's that piece of work that we're going to talk about on the podcast today. I started by asking Claudia to tell me a little bit about her work and how she became interested in working with fairy tales as a choice of career. Hi, my name is Claudia Schwabe and I am an assistant professor of German at Utah State University. I teach classes in German literature, translation, business, culture and fairy tales. And I would say that my main interests are fairy tales, fairy tale pedagogy, literary fairy tales, magic realism, East German fairy tale films or fairy tale film adaptations in general, whether for the movies or for TV. Um, I'm also very much interested in German romantic literature and culture and children's literature in general. I co-edited, together with my colleague Krista Jones, a book called New Approaches to Teaching Folk and Fairy Tales, uh, 
published by University Press of Colorado in 2016, which looks specifically at how fairy tales are used as tools for the college or university classroom. And I am currently finalizing my monograph titled Craving Supernatural Creatures, German Fairy Tale Figures in American Pop Culture, which will be published in 2019 by Wayne State University Press. I hold a PhD in German Studies from the University of Florida, and I am a native German. I was born and raised in Germany. I lived in Germany until I was 23. And uh, yeah, ever since I was little, I had a, a real passion for fairy tales. In fact, I tell people that the brothers Grimm and I go way back because we were both we were both born in Hano, which is in the beautiful state of Hesse in Germany. And um, so ever since I was little, they had fairy tale plays and fairy tale themed events in Hano. And uh, I was always fascinated by fairy tales. Further, I uh, watched TV and I remember vividly being absolutely blown away by Jim Henson's The Storyteller and um, other fairy tale themed shows for children, such as um, a puppet show called Fairy Tales of the World. And then, of course, my grandmother, who read fairy tales to me, mainly the Grimm's fairy tales, um, she just had this beautiful storytelling voice. And I also still remember how she read to me The Fisherman and His Wife, a very popular fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm. So fairy tales were always with me, but it wasn't really until my PhD studies that I decided to make a career out of it. So tell me a little bit about the scope and the purpose of your book. My major thesis is that American pop culture, whether we talk about films, books, television, comic books, video games, and so forth, transformed villainous and scary 19th century German fairy tale figures in approximately the last 50 years so that they appear to be less evil and frightening. In my opinion, this transformation reflects a greater tolerance of other ethnic groups and acceptance of diversity in America. Consequently, pop culture, which is quite often dismissed by critics, I argue needs to be taken more seriously. In my introduction, I assert that my study is relevant because it demonst demonstrates not only how postmodern fairy tale adaptations in North America are redrawing the lines about what is considered other, but it also traces an ideological shift of how we view and value diversity in society today. The fairy tale adaptations I examine are more than just twists on old stories and more than newly spun tales with creative embellishments. They serve as 
looking glasses of significant cultural trends, changes, customs and social challenges. And what was it that inspired you to write this particular book? It's amazing that I can actually remember exactly when the idea occurred first to write this book. It was exactly eight years ago in uh, 2010. And at that time, I watched a performance of the Broadway production Wicked, The Untold Story of the Witches of Oz, at the um, Apollo Victoria Theatre in London. The musical, based on Gregory Maguire's best-selling novel, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which in turn is a retelling of Frank Baum's classic 1900 story, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and its 1939 film adaptation, The Wizard of Oz, is told from the perspective of the witches of the land of Oz. And it was during this performance that I first pondered more deeply upon this growing trend of highlighting villains' backstories in fairy tale retellings in contemporary North American pop culture. Now, for those who are not familiar with the story, the musical Wicked tells the behind-the-scenes behind the story of how young Alphaba, the, the smart, talented, headstrong, but due to her emerald green skin, misunderstood outcast, befriends Galinda, who eventually becomes Glinda, the beautiful, ambitious, and very popular blonde. The tale revolves around these two very unlikely friends and how they grew up to become the infamous rivals, better known as the Wicked Witch of the West and the Good Witch of the North. The plot of the musical continues to follow Alphabet's tragic life journey, focusing on her thoughts, trials, tribulations, meaningful relationships, and ultimate descent into wickedness. And when Alphaba uncovers corruption in her land, she is given a choice to either accept the status quo or be exiled. And instead of returning to the community that rejected her, she makes bad decisions that while fueled by good intentions, eventually lead to her downfall. Now, in the year 2016, uh, Wicked performed over 5,000 performances, making it one of Broadway's longest-running shows. And I was wondering what the secret of Wicked's long-lasting popular appeal was. And I thought to myself that one key factor contributing to the musical's popularity appears to be Alphaba's very powerful backstory, which presents the audience with a creative and drastic twist of the traditional villain figure, here the young Wicked Witch. 
In fact, besides her green skin, Alphaba's sympathetic character bears very little resemblance to the classic Hollywood portrayal of the horrifying Wicked Witch played by Margaret Hamilton. The stage production, as I said, is based on Gregory Maguire's revisionist novel, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, and his brilliant idea to take this hated figure and tell things from her point of view. So it was after watching this performance that I really played with the idea to write a book about why we seem to be drawn to these rehabilitated villainous figures and why we crave supernatural creatures. Okay, so let's um let's turn to the content of the book itself. Now, what kind of supernatural creatures are you looking at particularly? Are they, for example, particularly German creatures that you're examining? I look at various supernatural creatures with a main emphasis on automatons, doppelgangers, golems, witches, talking wolves and werewolves, and fairy tale dwarfs. I would not say that any of these supernatural creatures are particularly German, since they have been an essential part of folklore, myths, legends, and fables, and fairy tales of various countries throughout history. However, they all appear in German folk tales and literary fairy tales of the Romantic period. And in my book, I analyze these creatures in their German contexts specifically. A good example is the golem creature, which stems from Jewish folklore. It is an animated anthropomorphic being that is magically created entirely from inanimate matter, specifically clay or mud. In my book, then, I analyze, for example, the German literary fairy tale or so-called Kunstmärchen, Isabella of Egypt, written by Achim von Arnim, one of the German romantics of the 19th century, as it features a threatening, treacherous female golem figure. In contrast to the traditionally formless and sexless mythical golem, the golem in this story is not only a woman, but also a doppelganger figure, which makes her a hybrid species. And as I will demonstrate in one of my chapters, these hybrid species are on the rise these days, upsetting the comfortable, familiar distinctions between them. So what about the fairy tales themselves? Which fairy tales are you predominantly focusing on? You've got a lot to choose from, after all. I focus mainly on German literary fairy tales of the Romantic period, so that would be early 19th century, and on the Grimm's Kinder and Hausmärchen, or Children's and Household Tales. Among the literary fairy tales are, for example, E.T.A. Hoffman's fairy tales, uh, Nussknacker und Mausekönig, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, which has become really a holiday staple for theaters across the United States. Uh, 
das fremde Kind or the strange child and the Sandman, the Sandman. In these tales, the figure of the automaton becomes not only a symbol of a repetitious, purely mechanical and dull world, but also the uncanny, threatening other that forebodes the hollow existence of living death or inanimate life without imagination. Another tale by Hoffman is Meister Floh or Master Flea, but I also examine works by Achim von Arnim and Ludwig Tieck. With regard to the Grimm's fairy tales, I take a closer look at the tales Snow White, Little Red Cap or Little Red Riding Hood, and Rumpelstiltskin. You've described this book uh, both as a monograph and as a book. Um, so how many chapters are there and what are you looking at in each of your chapters? So my book is divided into four chapters, uh, which are structured by different supernatural creatures, beginning with my examination of the automaton, the golem and the doppelganger, which emerged as popular fairy tale figures in the German tradition of dark romanticism in the early 19th century. E.T.A. Hoffman, Achim von Arnim, Joseph Eichendorf, Adelbert von Camisso, Ludwig Tieck, Wilhelm Hauf, and other romantic writers portray these three supernatural creatures in their literary fairy tales or Kunstmärchen as embodiments of the uncanny, as terrifying agents, and as diabolic harbingers of death. By drawing on Sigmund Freud's fundamental essay, Das Unheimliche, The Uncanny, published in 1919, and Conceptions of the Fantastic by Svetan Todorov's The Fantastic, A Structural Approach to a Literary Genre, and Rosemary Jackson's Fantasy, The Literature of subversion, I demonstrate how the automaton, the golem, and the doppelganger in German literary fairy tales can be read as personifications of the uncanny and unfamiliar other. I then move on to contemporary North American visual culture to illustrate how fairy tale-infused films such as Edward Scissorhands, AI, artificial intelligence, the Stepford Wives, Harry Potter, Frozen, and also television series such as The Simpsons, The X-Files, Sleepy Hollow, Once Upon a Time, and Grimm, for example, dramatize, humanize, and infantilize these uncanny characters in multifaceted ways. Chapter two then explores supernatural fairy tale villains foregrounding the popular figures of the evil queen and fairy tale witch 
in contemporary retellings of the Grimm's fairy tale Snow White. Here I examine the portrayals of today's fairy tale female villains in American film, television, and theater, and demonstrate how these productions either twist, distort, trivialize, or subvert the depictions of the archetypal evil queen and witch in German fairy tales. In particular, I am interested in the question of why audiences gravitate toward these reimagined villainesses as desirable figures that allow for personal identification. I'm not only, I not only carve out uh, transtextual connections between the Grimm's literary Snow White and its postmodern adaptations, but also explore the nature of the Queen's wickedness in the different variants, including um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Snow White, A Tale of Terror, Once Upon a Time, the television series, uh, Mirror, Mirror, the film with um, Julia Roberts, for example, um, Snow White and the Huntsman, and also The Huntsman, Winter's War. Beyond the Snow White corpus, I also include the popular Disney production Maleficent, which is rooted in the tale uh, Sleeping Beauty. In my analysis, then, I consider mental illness, psychosis, narcissistic personality disorder, addiction, and traumatic experiences of abuse to be possible sources of the fairy tale queen's evilness and highlight how contemporary adaptations redeem evil women through motherhood. In the third chapter, I deconstruct the concept of the monstrous other in fairy tales by scrutinizing the figure of the big bad wolf. Traditionally, the lupine creature that is known for preying on Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother incarnates the dangerous, scary, wild, and ferocious other. North American pop culture, however, does not monstrify this classic fairy tale beast and perpetrator, but instead portrays the supernatural creature in a more positive light, either as rehabilitated, appealing, sexy, and likable werewolf figure, or also as a funny, infantilized, anthropomorphized good wolf. And I begin this chapter with an illustration of how German fairy tales connote physical human-animal transformations negatively and magical mutations of human body parts into animalistic extremities as disadvantages. A hermeneutic or close reading 
of the Grimm's popular tale, Little Red Cap, exposes the wolf as a life-threatening, monstrous other and highlights parallels to Sigmund Freud's concept of the uncanny. I then concentrate on postmodern representations of the wolf as they emerge in the character uh, Monroe, for example, in the television show Grimm, the figure of Ruby or Red in the television show Once Upon a Time, um, the protagonist Valerie and her lover Peter in Catherine Hardwick's Red Riding Hood film, the tritagonist Wolf W. Wolf in the animated feature Hoodwinked, and Bigby Wolf in Bill Willingham's Fables comic book series, and the spin-off video game The Wolf Among Us. In chapter four, I explore the supernatural figure of the fairy tale dwarf, claiming that North American adaptations today emphasize the diversity of dwarfs' personalities and celebrate the potency of dwarfs' physicality. Departing from the idea of fairy tale imps as deformed, emasculated, infantilized, asexual people, contemporary films and television shows increasingly draw on regular height actors to portray traditional fairy tale dwarfs in multifaceted and at times sexually charged roles. Beginning with an introduction on the role of dwarfs in Norse and Germanic mythology, I then analyze the ambivalent role dwarfs play in German romantic fairy tales, including Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, and Snow White and Rose Red, drawing on source tales by the Brothers Grimm, Caroline Stahl, E.T.A. Hoffman, and Wilhelm Hauf. Anne Schmiesing's pioneering study, Disability, Deformity, and Disease in the Grimm's Fairy Tales, which was published in 2014, serves as an important reference work for me in this chapter. For my examination of the dwarf in contemporary media productions, I survey Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy, um, the film's Snow White, A Tale of Terror, Charlie Thompson's adventure television film Snow White, The Fairest of Them All, Joe Nussbaum's teen romantic comedy Sidney White, Tarzan Zai's family comedy Mirror Mirror, Rupert Sanders' action-loaded fantasy film Snow White and the Huntsman, and ABC's popular drama television series Once Upon a Time. Remarkably, the figure of the fairy tale dwarf in postmodern visual and pop culture appears less and less as a marginalized, oppressed identity that is socially constructed as a disabled, abnormal other. So tell us a little bit about how this relates to American popular culture. In my book, I not only look at contemporary North American films, television series, 
theater plays, video games, and comic books, but also at toys and consumer products. And a good example here is when I talk in my introduction about my first encounter with Mattel's Monster High Dolls in 2013. So this was definitely another very inspirational moment for me to decide to write this book. When I entered the aisle for girls' toys in one of America's most popular retailers, my eyes fell onto Frankie Stein, Claudine Wolf, Cleo de Nile, and Laguna Blue, fashion dolls from the American franchise Monster High, launched by Mattel in 2010. These ghoulish dolls are bone-thin goth Barbies, equipped with monstrous attributes such as fangs, stitches, wolf ears, fins, and so forth. Appearing more diverse than their normal Barbie sisters, the Monster High dolls display various skin tones ranging from blue, green, and brown to orange and pink. And these freaky doll creations by Garrett Sander were unlike any dolls I had ever seen before. The teenage dolls, which look like sort of the underfed love children of Tim Burton and Lady Gaga, attend a school for creepy creatures called Monster High. And the idea behind the brand is that we're all somehow monstrous because of our idiosyncrasies, perhaps quirky characteristics and individual flaws. And as Laurie Pantel, Mattel's vice president for marketing global girls' brands, emphasized the Monster High brand uses the monster metaphor to show girls that it is okay to be different and that our unique differences should be celebrated. So what does all this teach us? What, what, what can we learn or what can we take away from the contents of your book? Whereas traditionally, the princess was horrified to find the frog prince sitting on her pillow, Little Red Riding Hood was gobbled up by the big bad wolf, and Hansel and Gretel were imprisoned by the cannibalistic witch. Today's monsters and ogres have become lovable, funny, and are heaped on children's beds in the form of soft toys. Young and adult filmgoers worship animal-human hybrid bodies equipped with magical powers when they make their pilgrimages to the movie theaters to, th to see the X-Men, Spider-Man, or J.K. Rowling's fantasy world. At home, audiences enjoy quirky fairy tale retellings on television or in the forms of video games and comic books, which subvert the illusion of a coherent, homogeneous world and promote tolerance of otherness in all shapes colors and sizes. In rehabilitating monsters and villains by embracing diversity, we are seeing an ideological shift, although not fully realized yet in our society, that values alterity and otherness. The trend may suggest that the 21st century American consumers of fairy tales are longing to see the transition from celebrating fictional representations 
of diversity in pop culture to cherishing actual non-fictional diversity in areas of their everyday life. Unfortunately, many people are still faced nowadays with marginalization, harassment, bullying, and other challenging struggles in their day-to-day lives due to their race, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, age, and so forth. However, the craving of supernatural creatures and the growing embrace of fantastic otherness in North American popular culture may indeed represent a promising sign of a dawning era of increased mutual tolerance, acceptance of differences, and appreciation of heterogeneity. It's a fascinating collection of research, and it's going to make a wonderful book, I'm sure. So when is it going to be available? Well, hopefully very soon. And um, if everything goes smoothly, I expect the book Craving Supernatural Creatures to be available for purchase in the year 2019. I will do my very best to speed up the production process and work very hard, but I think the earliest date we can realistically expect the book to be in the stores or on Amazon would be sometime in 2019. I'm very grateful to Claudia for taking the time to join us on the Folklore Podcast and talk about what is going to be, I'm sure, a fascinating book, and I really look forward to this coming out. And I'm particularly grateful as in a few weeks' time, Claudia is due to give birth to her first child. And I'd like to take the opportunity to wish both her and her husband all the best of luck with their new family. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.